Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers, O oh, children of the noble ones, and fellow medium sized beings. I greet you on this rainy, windy evening. And I had the thought, I came in a bit early, I had been doing some walking meditation and then I came in and was actually doing some standing meditation. And I had the thought that perhaps we would just listen to the sounds of the wind and the rain this evening instead of this talk I've prepared. The, the eloquence of that I cannot hope to uh, come very close to. But I don't know how my colleagues would feel about that. They're actually probably saying, yes, I know Brian is. He's always encouraged me to... Uh, keep my peace when the <coughs> idea crosses my mind. It's true. <laughs> Not that he has a, an objection to anything I might say. He just encourages me to do weird stuff. Um, I was, when I was putting this talk together and I was thinking over my notes and thinking on this ideas I was going to <coughs> address. And I, I had this deep appreciation for uh, the Buddha this evening. This, um, you know, some, the, the teachings in some ways seem very simple and straightforward. And someone once said, Buddha Dhamma is just advanced common sense. And I think there's something really real in that because you know, he's pointing at stuff that seems kind of obvious but I don't know if I would have come across it in, on my own. I don't think so. And I had this just uh, appreciation, amazement for that genius of, of seeing, understanding the human condition so profoundly and then being able to um, say something about it in a way that so many over so many centuries have been able to hear. What kind of reverence there. And you know, there's many fingers. We could think of all the great spiritual traditions as fingers pointing at the moon. And hopefully the moon they're pointing at is in here and I'm pointing to my heart center now for those who aren't looking at me. And we want to look at the moon, not at the finger. But I have a lot of appreciation for that particular finger this evening. There's many different ones, of course. There, Buddha once said, and this has been quoted many times as a famous, one of those good one-liners that the Buddha came out with said, now and before I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. Now that's actually two things. <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> it's, it's a strong statement. And, and I see it as, it's kind of a, the condensed, uh, a condensed version of 
of his teaching of the Four Noble Truths. That's what the Four Noble Truths um, really points to. It's understanding of suffering, its cause, its release, and the way that leads to freedom. But statements like this, I think, have given Buddhism kind of a bad rap as kind of a downer religion. You know, life is suffering and get used to it. Something like that. People who don't, don't plumb, plumb the depths at all. But the Buddha and his followers, they were known as, as the happy ones. They had a reputation for being happy. They weren't hanging around bummed out all the time. Oh man, life, what a drag. <laughs> that, that wasn't, they weren't known for that. And those who I have met in my, in my travels and life in Dhamma over many years now, those who have really realized these teachings to, to depth are happy. They're happy beings, contented at least. Maybe contentment is, is a better way of touching into that sense. Not a yuckety yuck kind of happiness, but a deeper kind of happiness, a contentment. Contentment is such an elusive thing for us, maybe especially in, in modern times. And I'll speak about here in the United States because this is where I grew up and where I live most of the time. And, and it's a culture of discontent. And there's, there's a lot of encouragement to feel that one is in a state of lack. So much we need to be happy. And this, this conditioning really strong that we, we look outside ourselves for, for the source of contentment in our lives. Strong conditioning and experiences and conditions and things get those things and then contentment arises from, from that. It makes our, our ability to be content dependent on conditions. If it's like this, then contentment might be there. And we lose so much personal power when we see things this way. And we lose sight of the fact that contentment is an internal experience. Last year, I was here on retreat for these two months. Some of you were here with me. You have, that's the better thing. It's better, I'd I'd rather do that than what I'm doing up here, let me tell you. It's a better deal. And I remember, You know, it was, it rained pretty much every day. Remember, it rained every day in February and almost all of March. Harder than it did at any time. And it just poured. And my back went out. uh, So I had a lot of physical uh, discomfort. I had to do a lot more reclining meditation because of that. And, and yet, I remember reporting, I was meeting with Andrea, and I remember telling her, I, I'm so contented. That was my experience, this contentment was there. Now the external conditions didn't point to that as an obvious state. 
And it wasn't because I was just hanging out in some blissful state. You know, it's kind of doing what you were doing, going around, mind wander sometimes. You know, from some, my own conditioning around my own internal assessment, it wasn't going that great. You know, not, not the worst yogi, not the best. You know, <laughs> somewhere in the middle there. But I've been struck at times by this quality of contentment arising at times when I might not have expected it. I remember on my first three-month retreat, I sat for a three-month retreat within just a few months of ever having started meditating. And I I remember I was so happy, this contentment quality of happy. I just remember noticing that one time. It seemed like, wow, I'm so contented, more than I think I had ever felt in my life. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I just, to be that, living that, that degree of care, that made me so happy to be able to live with that, with this relationship to being, just being mindful. It's like, oh man, this is good. And one time I was on retreat, and some of you heard this story, I was on retreat, I was practicing in Bodh Gaya in India, and I was in the Thai Vihara there. It's a, you know, these uh, places you can stay that are um, pilgrim uh, places where pilgrims from different countries uh, put make these places where pilgrims can come. And there's lots of them in Bodhgaya. And I was in the Thai Thai temple there, and I was it was during it was actually an organized retreat, and and they had put a a bunch of us um, the men those who identified as male we were sleeping underneath the main temple building and you couldn't stand up straight. It was maybe four and a half or five feet tall. There's one doorway in. We had straw pallets on the cement floor with a mosquito net and we were cheek by jowl about as close as you are sitting here. We had a little space for our stuff and it wouldn't have passed code in the United States. Um, and because it was a long distance to the latrines, we had two five-gallon buckets uh, to pee in at night, to urinate in. And uh, someone had to empty those, and, and that was my yogi job. Um, and I remember one morning I was walking along with my buckets of urine <laughs> on my way, and I was kind of sloshing out. And, and again, you know, it's like, uh, so content. <laughs> and, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that I, I knew that was not going to be my life for the rest of my life in all likelihood. My sense was if this is my life here at the Thai Vihara, meditating, going through the days, carrying my urine in the mornings, <laughs> that, that I would be fine. But I, I, there might be someone where that would be their job, and if that was, I, I might not feel that way. I have to acknowledge my, where I'm speaking from when I say things like this, from a place of, of privilege, and knowing that that might not be my life. But there's something still um, worth looking at in, in a story like that, of this quality of contentment independent of the external conditions to a great extent. 
So then back to the statement of the Buddha, you know, this path leading to a kind of happiness, contentment in that way. And, and him beginning his statement, I teach suffering and the end of suffering, but why teach suffering? You know, why, what's that got to do with happiness or contentment? Why start there? You know, why would, what's, what's up with that? And we, we translate the Pali word dukkha as suffering, and that's a, um, that there's a problem. It, it's, it's an inadequate um, translation for the word suffering. There's an aspect of dukkha that suffering is a good translation for. Tanjef, a few words from Tanisaro Bhikkhu Tanjef. No single English word adequately captures the full depth, range, and subtlety of the crucial Pali term dukkha. Many translations of the word have been used, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, and so forth. And each one has its own merits in a given context. There's a value in not letting oneself get too comfortable with any one particular translation of the word. Since the entire thrust of this practice, of Buddhist practice, is the broadening and deepening of one's understanding of dukkha until its roots are finally exposed and eradicated once and for all. What what does dukkha mean? As Tanjef said, it's a crucial term goes to the very heart of what the Buddha was teaching. So we can see it on different levels, one way to look at it. Dukkha is uh, suffering in terms of painful feelings that come, that are associated just with having a body. There's discomfort. If we have one of these, if we take birth, discomfort is part of the deal sometimes. There's painful and pleasant feelings there, both. Just the process of birth, aging, sickness, and the the journey towards uh, death eventually. Painful feelings come along the way. Death may likely be, have some unpleasant vedana, unpleasant feelings associated with that process, if nothing else, along the way. And we get that. And there are difficult mental and emotional states that come to all of us, no matter what our circumstances. So there's this aspect of it. There's dukkha that comes from being uh, separated from what we love and, and having to associate with what we don't like. There's the worldly conditions that come. And then there's a more subtle understanding of dukkha, which is a kind of um, unreliability and insecurity that's an intrinsic part of all life on this, in this conditioned realm. It doesn't matter, pleasant or unpleasant. So dukkha is, is even uh, a part of a pleasant experience in, in this uh, kind of inner um, anxiety, unreliability, because things are uh, subject to change, right? They don't last. There's a, a fragility to things because of that. Everything changes. And this flow of changing conditions is largely out of our direct control can't determine to have it only be one way. If we could, we just say, let me, let me just only have pleasant experiences from now on and go home. But we don't get that. The Buddha didn't get that either. 
So there's this, this kind of um, vulnerability in that. I was living in San Francisco when I first started uh, meditating in a formal way, when I first came to the practice. And I, I was, um, I, I think San Francisco is the greatest, the coolest city in North America, or in, in the United States, in this part of North America. I was living there in the, in the 80s, and I had, I had really interesting work, and really good friends, and good, I had this really cool place to live. And I, I had, so everything was good in that way. Plus, I had managed to raise my personal coolness quotient <laughs> to heretofore unachieved levels. <laughs> you know, the Buddha said I was delicate, most I, delicate. I was cool, most cool. <laughs> Supremely cool. You know, there's been this tragic reduction of that over the years. <laughs> and I, I notice it just doesn't bother me as much as it should. <laughs> you, you have no idea what you've missed <laughs> in terms of this. But the fact that it doesn't bother me points to the slight possibility that I may have chi- achieved a different kind of coolness. <laughs> uh, Jerry's out on that one. But there was this thread of dissatisfaction that ran through my life, through my days. And everything was about as good. It seemed really good. And I I felt like I had tried everything to get my life to be um, the way I wanted it to be, the way it was supposed to be in some some way. And there was this, this... emptiness at times, not, not all the time, but if I slowed down, if I paused ever, which I didn't do very much, and feel a sense of, well, is this all? I was touching into this, this unsatisfactoriness of dukkha. I didn't know it at the time. But I think it was part of the impetus that got me to go to my, my first meditation retreat. So there is this depth and breadth of, of insecurity, this unreliability, this fragility that underlies what we might think of as the human condition. It's threaded throughout our life and it forms our life, touches our life in a, in a subtle but constant and really profound way. There's a few words from Bhikkhu Bodhi whether in the form of pain, frustration, distress. Suffering reveals the basic insecurity of the human condition. It throws before our our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our will. I like this image, it throws before our awareness. It's tossing that in front of our awareness constantly. This fact, this, this insecurity. And you know, we have this conditioning. I know I've seen, saw this in my own life, but we're supposed to be able to get our lives to some point where it's always pleasant, always how, it's, how we want it to be, as though somehow it's magically exempt from the truths of change and unpredictability and somehow would be controllable. 
And we bring this to retreat. We have this sense, this feeling, this hope that we would never admit to if anyone asked us that we're going to be gaining that kind of control. You know, the, we're going to get, especially in a month-long retreat, the secret teachings that will come out. <laughs> Do this and you can always have it the way you want it. And this attitude leads us to take the, the noble truth of dukkha, this is the first noble truth, the noble truth, it leads us to take that personally as though, as though somehow it's our failure to get it to only be the way we want and stay that way is, is evidence of personal failure. Somehow it's our fault. We're blowing it in some way. And you know, we have, we, it's not that we're without any, anything to add into the equation. We do our best to live with as much grace and integrity and intelligence and kindness as possible. So we add that in, but we don't get this ability to have it only be the way we want. And there is real suffering in the world. And the truths of poverty and injustice and oppression are all too real. But this, the truth is that so much of our, our struggle and stress and suffering is in, in relationship to this unsatisfactoriness, this insecurity. It's born in the mind. It's born of how we're relating. Wanting things to be other than the way they are and, and struggling with that, fighting against the truth of change. If we look, we'll see this is the where the root of struggle and stress in our lives really arises. Has its genesis in the mind, in in the resistance, frustration, denial, these misguided attempts, it's all born of this desire to be happy underneath all of the nonsense we get up to. And we get up to a lot of it. Boy, as a species, we have taken wacko behavior to levels that no one could possibly have imagined in this movement of heart towards trying to be happy. That's underneath all of that. Even those who seem to be doing everything to cause themselves and others suffering, they're trying to be happy, just massively confused about what would actually lead to that. And this does run so counter to our conditioning because we're so, so, strongly conditioned to look outside ourselves for the source of our stress and struggle and suffering and for the solution to it. The reason the Buddha pointed to suffering, to dukkha, to this understanding, this unreliability, dukkha on all the levels, the reason he said, look at that, understand that, this is to be understood. The reason he started there is because it's actually really good news. It's great news for us. Because if, if our ability to find, um, if, if, if suffering and non-suffering were totally dependent on the external conditions and our circumstances, we would be ultimately hopeless because we can't control that. But since it's an internal, that's, that is internal and based on our relationship to the truths of change, of unreliability, of this uncontrollability, then, then we can, uh, we can um, find a way to transform our, our relationship, to transform our view, our orientation. Now, this is where the Buddha started. This is where we start. 
Because until we look at that, we'll always be trying to find a way out, a way around it somehow. We'll always be turning to that which is inherently incapable of providing what we're seeking. We're looking in the wrong place for happiness, turning to something that's unreliable. Even the most sublime experience, it's gonna change. It can't be the source of our, our strategy for finding the contentment. It's an endless search. So then skillfully opening to this truth of dukkha on these levels, it can lead us to seek a reliable path, something that might actually lead to freedom. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai teacher Ajahn Chah, speaks about it in terms of, of, um, of seeing a, a way that the road is blocked. We open to dukkha, we see Uh, the road is blocked. I'll read this quotation. I've read it before. In Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, this pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But if we, as soon as we experience it, we lose heart. We don't want to see it. But it's really the truth. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we're trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So opening to and, and really understanding this truth, this noble truth, allows that we can shift our focus and regular, rather than struggling and fighting against it, or falling into despair because the road is blocked, we'll shift our view and in and and shifting our view, we, we um, find a way to let go of struggle, let go of fighting against the truth of things, against the way it really is. We look for another way, a way that leads to freedom. And, and it also shifts our view to a broad perspective where we see how universal the situation is. It's not just us. The noble truth of dukkha is not a personal problem for some of us, and not a reflection of our failure to get our act together. It's an ailment, you could say, that's embedded and woven into the very fabric of our existence. And it's going to require a radical radical therapy to cure it. Look at it that way. There's an interesting and, and it may sound kind of counterintuitive at first, an interesting teaching that talks about opening to dukkha in this way as being the proximate cause for the arising of faith. It's part of two chains of, of um, what are called dependent origination or dependent co-arising. First one talks is a chain of 12 links that leads from ignorance to suffering. Second one is a chain of, of links that leads from faith through to liberation. And faith is, the, is on the cusp. It's right on the cusp there. It's between suffering and then this, this link, suffering, then in the causal factor for the arising of faith. Why, why would that work? And, and what, what's, what's the link there? But opening to dukkha, even skillfully, even in this way of understanding it, that's not enough. 
in and of itself to lead to the arising of faith. A few more words from Bhikkhu Bodhi. The confrontation with suffering, even at the level of mature reflection, is not sufficient to generate faith. And here I want to say faith is confidence or trust. Using that word in synonymously, interchangeably with those terms. It's not the kind of faith that's a, a question of belief that we might find in some traditions. So I want to make that very clear. But I will use the word faith because I love that word, sadha in Pali. But I know that has a different, different connotations for some of us that I don't have. That's what I'm pointing to, trust, confidence. When you hear faith, hear those words. And I'll toss them in sometimes. For faith to arise, two conditions are required. The first is the awareness of suffering, which makes us recognize the need for a liberative path. The second is the encounter with a teaching that actually proclaims and offers a liberative path. So for dukkha to lead to faith, it needs something to draw upon, a possibility a path, a teaching, a a pointing to a possibility that seems trustworthy. I think I I mentioned uh, earlier uh, this evening that I I was living in San Francisco at the time that I I first went to, became, uh, started meditating. And I I learned how to meditate on a 10-day long retreat. I went there not having ever done any meditation at all. And my friend, I, a friend of mine, had I told my friend, business partner and friend that I, who was, would go off on retreats and said I wanted to learn to meditate. She said, well, sign up for this 10-day retreat. That's a good place to learn. And um, so I did. And she said, promise me you'll stay at least three days. <laughs> she thought I was a likely candidate to bolt. And I did think very strongly about leaving pretty much every day. She should have said, stay for eight days. That's about how long it took me to decide I was into it in a certain way. You know, I mean, I had not meditated for even a second. And the teachers, you know, they didn't look like my idea of these great spiritual masters. You know, they looked kind of like me, (laughs) which was a bit disappointing. And I, I understand that many of you are probably feeling that way a bit. Uh, on the retreat now. They didn't, they didn't come floating into the hall with long flowing robes. And, but what they said made sense. I had the sense they're telling me the truth here. And it wasn't a thing that I had to put on and put on a belief, a doctrine or some, some belief. It was never that. I, I use this word in the opening talk, ehi pasiko, come and see. It was always, check it out. Look for yourself. But they seemed to be telling me something true. And there was this sense of possibility and something real. And they seemed to have this confidence and to have benefited very personally and directly. And it seemed like, well, if they could learn something from this, I could too. And so I, I borrowed their confidence Initially, I borrowed it every day 
And then by the end of that first 10-day retreat, I was, I was pretty sold. I had tasted some sense of a possibility. It seemed like it just happened despite me. I wasn't a model yogi. I didn't do any walking meditation. I love walking meditation, but everybody's creeping around and they just look, they look bad to me. You know, I didn't want to do that stuff. But I walked and I stayed quiet and I was trying to be mindful. So that's, I did do it, but I didn't do this lifting, moving, placing stuff. It just seemed wacko. It didn't look good. Now this is not an excuse for you to avoid your walking meditation. And I'm here to tell you, it's the best. If I ever get enlightened, it's going to be while I'm doing walking meditation fully enlightened. And it's going to maybe be, I think it's going to be when I'm doing the turning part. (laughs) Really check out that turning at the end. I have seen so much during that. My enlightenment poem, I was turning and the darkness opened. (laughs) I don't want to use the word darkness here. There's a bad connotation. In that turning, Just pay attention there. (laughs) So there was this bright, what we sometimes call bright faith, bright confidence. Says, yes, there's some possibility here and I might be able to do this and this trust that we can take the next step. Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once described Uh, Faith as, uh, he said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Like that. Is that enough to take the next step? Enough confidence. I mentioned the Pali word that we translate as faith is sadha. And it literally means that which supports or upholds confidence and trust. The teacher, Sharon Salzberg, translates uh, sadashi as this, having the sense of, of placing one's heart somewhere. It's kind of a beautiful image. And to me, it points to um, what we might think of as sort of the Buddhist perspective of seeing faith as related to uh, the uh, triple gem, the objects of refuge that I, we talked about, the opening the first night of the March retreat and at other times, this uh, refuge in the triple gem of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, refuge in wakefulness, in the truth of the way things really are, in, in our shared intention, movement of heart towards liberation, what's possible for us. And we don't place a blind or uncritical faith in these things. We bring um, this... Um, we bring this sense of exploration to that. We put them to the test and see for ourselves with a kind of critical scrutiny. Really, okay, yeah, let me see. This ehipasiko. And so faith is called the seed of all wholesome states. And I think this is, directly relates to the wholesome path to liberation in this trend, what's called transcendental dependent arising that I briefly touched on and maybe one of my colleagues might talk about later in the retreat. It's this, this seed that 
uh, gives birth to these beautiful qualities this, and gives us the strength to set out, to take that next step. And in the text, there's this, this image of faith giving us the confidence to launch out to cross a flooded area. There's another place where it's said that faith is likened to, it has the quality of being a hand that can reach out and take hold of what's useful, take hold of of something um, wholesome and beautiful that leads to understanding. There's another place where the image of faith, it said it's like a water clearing gem. In those days, there was this idea that there was a a gem that would clear water, settle impurities out of water, or purify water, make it uh, able to drink cloudy water, impure water. Now, this image of, uh, to me, it's like clarifying the priorities that we hold, our values, to see what's worth doing in our life. Okay, as clarification in that way. And it brings this sense of possibility together with this trust that we might actually be able to walk a journey to freedom, find some stability, balance, ease, contentment, and right in the midst of life's changes. And so we have this initial bright faith, like my bright faith. You know, it was so, um, I remember I was so filled with this bright faith after that first 10-day retreat. I just thought, wow, this is something so real. But we have to keep, you know, I'm so high from it in a way. And, and, but then we have to keep going or to do the practice. And sometimes it's, it's not easy. And sometimes it's the hardest, feels like the hardest thing we could ask ourselves to do, just to sit here for an hour. You know, we didn't get issued a particularly uncomfortable body and a particularly weird mind when we came through the gate. That wasn't given to us. You know, it's the same one we had before we came here. It's bad news, isn't it? We didn't know it was, as, we knew it was kind of bad, but we didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> but how often, you know, how often do we, we don't spend much time with ourselves in that way. We spend most of our time trying to avoid that in our lives, don't we? You know, I went, I, after that retreat, I, I, I wanted to do more practice. And I heard about this place on the East Coast called Insight Meditation Society. And I heard they had a three-month retreat. I wanted to go do that, but I didn't have enough, uh, I didn't qualify to apply. I had to do another retreat or two. And so I, I went out there and I, I did another retreat. And I thought, oh, I'll just, it'll just be like, I'll start where I left off. And it'll be really even from good to better. And they was just slogging it out. It's like, wow, this isn't any fun. I'm having a bad time here. Just, you know, the hard work. And so there's this tenderness to the initial kind of bright faith, you know, and we can borrow others' faith, and, but, but it's, it can falter. Um, you know, we need to see, we need something deeper because it can get swept away by changing conditions and, and doubt will find a way in there so easily. So we need a deeper, more personal uh, sense of trust and confidence and faith. 
or else we won't we won't keep going you know and and as i said doubt will slip in so easily and you know we during the day we find ourselves wondering what am i doing here and what was the person thinking who suggested i come and what is this sitting and walking supposed to do what does that have to do with liberation you know and everyone else is clearly sitting like the buddha and we just have this wild and crazy mind and heart and this uncomfortable body that won't do what we want. And you know, doubt is going to come up. And not just at the beginning of our practice life. The Buddha was apparently assailed by doubt on the eve of his enlightenment. One of the things that came into the heart then, who do you think you are? But if we stay with it, and over time, if we patiently, gently keep showing up, this willingness to actually meet each moment with this care and this uh, quality of kind-heartedness there, show up for our life, we start to strengthen this quality of faith, of trust. We start to find an inner strength there and this trust in the quality of the mindful of mindfulness itself, of mindful awareness itself. We start to see mindfulness is the best protection. Mindfulness is our real friend. Awareness is our real friend, our guest friend. It leads us towards a deeper kind of letting go, a kind of surrender into, okay, let me just let the moment be as it is. Let me meet that, this sense I can meet the moment as it is the strength of heart, we, we can make mistakes, we can show up and we'll, we'll do the best we have and we don't have to be uh, perfect. This is one of the greatest gifts of practice over the years is this ability to not be perfect, to not do it perfectly, whatever that is, our ideas of that. Perfection is not a prerequisite for awakening, friends. First-hand experience. There's a quotation from the third Zen patriarch in this beautiful poem called Verses on the Faith Mind. It's one small excerpt. To live in the highest realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. To live without anxiety about non-perfection. We might think of this, we could interpret this find meaning in different ways. For me, it points to a couple of things. One is that there's this acceptance of the inherently imperfect nature of conditioned existence. It's like samsara is inherently flawed. We can't fix it. We can't fix the, we can't fix anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And all these hindrances and all this greed, aversion, and delusion, all those things are doing, they're just trying to help us. They're misguided attempts to deal with those truths. They're not bad or wrong. They're just trying to deal with the truths of change, of unreliability. Those are built in. Those are inherent aspects of life on this plane. So it's a deep, deep acceptance of that. That's the way it is. 
So we, we're in harmony with those rather than fighting against them. And then another, this realization of living without anxiety about non-perfection is this, uh, we, we allow ourselves to be imperfect. We don't have to take things personally and we don't have to see ourselves as a problem to be fixed. So much of my life I viewed myself as, as a project something to work on and fix because it was just clearly not right, not okay. We don't have to control everything and try to fix these tragically flawed personalities. We can intentionally strengthen, we can bring reflections and things that strengthen the quality of faith. There are times when we, when we can bring to mind ways, small, simple, large ways that we, we overcame, we've overcome challenges in our meditation practice or in our life when we have gone through difficulty and come back to balance, kept going. I noticed strengthening of faith. One time in one of these, that first three-month retreat, the teachers said, why don't you just, why don't you try making a, of uh, determination that you'll sit without moving for an entire period. And they were hour long mostly at that retreat. And, and I had never done that and I decided to do it. And I thought I was gonna die. I thought the, the level of physical and psychological dukkha, <laughs> I just thought, I'm not going to make it here. But my determination was strong. It was as though I couldn't move. And then when the bell rang, I didn't, I didn't move. I didn't have to. And it was just this, I thought, I, I felt like I can take anything. Just sitting still for an hour. It really wasn't that bad. And the first time I, I did a long period of practice in uh, Myanmar, in Burma, where I've spent a lot of time. And, and I felt pushed to the edge of what I thought I could bear there at one point in terms of the effort I was making and the intensity of my experience, painful feelings in the body and heat. And, and at times this level of exhaustion that I, I had never experienced before. And I thought, I just can't take it. But I found that I could take it. We both bolstered this sense of this inner strength where I could keep going. I'm not saying you have to push yourselves to this, these extreme places. That's not the message I want you to be hearing here. But we all have our stories of ways that we've made it through. We discover that we have an inner strength that we might not have known we had. It's good to reflect on these. And, and over time, as we go through all that we go through, I mean, how many lifetimes do we go through in a day? It's incredible. You know, we take birth in these hell realms and these heaven realms and everything in between. Just even in one period of meditation, it seems like. I see people, you know, a couple of days have gone by and it's like lifetimes ago. A whole different, inhabiting a whole different universe just over the course of a day. 
And through all of that, we start to discover a more verified um, personal faith, confidence, where we see, I can do this practice and these teachings have meaning for me in a personal way. We're not relying on someone else's confidence. And, and we see that these teachings, things that we heard and they seemed like an idea and they were theoretical, we see that they're informing our lives in a way that is really meaningful. The truth of impermanence. You hear it every day so much. Everything is changing. Subject to arising, subject to passing away. And we start to see this is actually informing our lives in a real way. And we see that if we try to hold on to that river of sand or try to grab that water, that flow, and hold on to it, it's just setting us up for suffering. And we find we're, not doing, we're just not doing it quite as much. We're letting go more often. And that there's a connection to this truth that, that is informing our lives in a way that um, we, didn't, we didn't expect, perhaps. That it's become real. It's in the cells, in the bones. We see wisdom does sometimes arise. And with patient, persistent, gentle effort, with conviction and sincerity, understanding comes. And... And it's not so tender, this confidence, because we've seen for ourselves, this is, this is something real here. Not someone's idea about it. We see where we're strong and we try to live from our strengths. And we see where we're vulnerable and we take care there and bring tenderness and, and uh, kindness to those places. And this is leading in the direction of what we might call an unshakable kind of faith. Where there's, you know, even though doubt might arise in moments, there's nothing that can really shake our conviction that the path is onward leading, that we are heading towards liberation. We have this confidence that goes along with the understanding that it's a long path. We see how, we see how strong these deeply conditioned habits of mind, boy, do we see how strong those, those are. I mean, they stick around. We've seen through them from every possible angle. And then this bait comes by on this hook and we see ourselves, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna bite it, here I go, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> and we rise up and we, we bite it. But we, we spit it out <laughs> sometimes <laughs> or we get the hook out a little sooner <laughs> than we used to. You know, we, we have to have great respect for the power of, of these deeply conditioned habits. They are in there. We need to bow to those things. We don't have to um, give over. We don't have to fall into um, a place of futility or resignation, but we need to bow to that because we get a lot of, we see that. We see, okay, it's a long path. And this untangling of the tangle there is um, gonna happen in its own time. But there's this faith in this trajectory of the path that is, is strong and firm and, and we can rely on, on that even through the times when things get shaky. And as this trust and confidence grows, this faith, this sadha, and we, we find it reflects more and more a trust in the, in the quality of awareness, in the aware mind itself. We see that that is, is not affected by ultimately what's, 
what's known. The awareness of fear is not afraid. We see awareness can actually hold anything, ultimately, anything that arises. And so our faith and our confidence, our uh, trust reflects this trust in this capacity that we all have. Check it right now. Ask the question in your mind, in your heart, is there awareness? It's a good question to ask once in a while because you always get to say yes. Anytime you ask that, the answer is always yes. It's not that big a deal, but it changes everything. There's this, this awareness that opens the door to a truth that was already there inside us. And, there's, and we find this deep kind of real refuge, an inner refuge, true refuge, and it goes with us everywhere. No matter where we are, no matter what's going on, bring that with us. I'll end with a a short quotation from a book called Awareness Itself from a Thai monk named Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you just have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. We can sit quietly for a minute and listen to the froggies. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, we have a little over half an hour for some walking meditation. 
And I just want to mention again that the, the format for the, the evening chanting is, uh, the rule is you can come just for the chanting and leave uh, immediately after that if you'd like to. And then we have a, a short sitting um, and I ring the bell um, just after a short sitting there. So um, yeah, you please be welcome. We're chanting. Mostly, most nights we're doing the uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta in Pali and or English. Uh, but sometimes there's something else. So please be welcome. <laughs>